0: And now, coming to you live from the Gresham room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolfe with award-winning writer Nina Allen and critic and book blogger Renee on the Coot Street Podcast!
1: And once again, we're off. I'm I'm watching the kind of graph of of of, of your fading out on podcasts, and it, it's elegant to look at.
0: What are you suggesting
1: I'm fading out? Well, okay, oh, I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> I stepped on you. Never mind. Um <laughs> Renee and Nina, thank you for being on the podcast and saving us from having to talk about Jonathan's fade-out. Um,
2: let's,
1: let's back up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs>
2: this
1: is, we also need to explain to our regular listeners, both of them, that this is one of the rare podcasts where I'm recording in the morning and, and, and Renee is also here in the States recording in the morning. And for Jonathan, it's late evening. And most of these podcasts, it's late evening for me and early morning for Jonathan.
0: And, and I believe it's a, a balmy afternoon for Nina. <laughs> Very. <It's laughs> I know. The, it's this the is... one.
2: It's the one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and, and we are here to discuss, well, uh, what kicks this conversation off is an essay that uh, Renee wrote for Strange Horizons last month called Community's Weight of History. Which which is a you know a fascinating article about, well, I read it as being about the barriers to being part of science fiction and to be, being a science fiction fan. And I think possibly the most interesting thing to do, to get started, so we have some sort of common ground, is maybe first Renee and then you, Nina, could you both tell us how you got involved in science fiction?
3: I watched a lot of Sailor Moon as a teenager. <laughs> the anime, that's where yeah, I started, yeah. probably. Yeah, okay, yeah. I I, I... I mean, before that, I was into it, right? Because as a little kid, you watch a lot of, like, Care Bears and Rainbow Bright. And those things are pretty much science fiction and fantasy. But they don't translate well to, like, adult SF. But uh, I started in pretty much Sailor Moon. I came up through Final Fantasy, the video games. Yep. And then I landed in Fanwork Fandom, where I wrote fanfic. I've been running fanfic for 20 years. And then I sort of... sidled into science fiction and fantasy prose fandom, I guess you would call it. And mm-hmm. was that recently? I joined in two thousand nine, two thousand
0: eight, two thousand nine. And you've been book I blogging think. since then. When did you start book review blogging?
3: Oh, I've been doing like that since online journal, like back in two thousand two. Yep. Uh, that like the proto book blogs. I remember like the early days of book blogging. But I never like, did it myself until like around 2008
0: and
2: 2009. Yeah. And Nina? I um, have to admit that I came in via Doctor Who. <laughs> um, I, you know, yeah, I'm British. Um, I was six years old and I could not believe this thing was on the screen, this weekly show that seemed entirely directed at me. Um, I just loved it. I was scared but i loved it um i i don't know where that love of strangeness and speculation and the the idea of the unknown um came from but i i did just instinctively respond to it there wasn't anyone it wasn't a it wasn't a family thing my dad was actively scared of Doctor Who and <laughs> my mum just thought it was rubbish. So I didn't get any encouragement from around me. It was just sort of, it, it, it just naturally appealed. And um, I was a really obsessive reader from quite a young age. So when the two passions of sort of monsters and books finally came together um, and I started reading science fiction, that seemed to be, as well, a natural progression of my interest. And I began, um, I suppose, seriously reading science fiction in my early teens with writers like Wells and Wyndham, mm-hmm. which I just devoured. But with absolutely no idea that such a thing as fandom or even science fiction, as a sort of separate, definable genre, existed. I just knew what I liked. Um, I had certain kind of markers for finding the books I liked. I know I said in my blog post that it was the Galanks' famous, mm-hmm. very, very standout yellow jackets that that sort of gave me. Oh yes, this is this is part of that kind of literature that I like. I'm going to read this one. And I, I actually had no idea about fandom, Worldcon, Eastercon, anything like that, until I started writing seriously, which was sort of the around tur- about 1999, 2000. That was really the first I actually knew about what we call the science fiction community.
0: So, had you been reading for, what, 50, science fiction for about 15 years before? You got the idea of it as, if you like, science fiction as a genre?
2: I read avidly in um, science fiction from the age of about 12 until I went to university mm-hmm. at about 18. When, when you go, <laughs> when you do a literature degree, you are, if not actively, you are very subtly persuaded away from the idea of science fiction as being anything worthy of your professional time as it were and I didn't start I, I just I was reading during that whole period I was reading very much um, core canon literature with an accent on Russian literature which is what I majored in as and um, I didn't return to science fiction probably until about I would say five to ten years after that when I started writing seriously and the odd thing was when i started writing seriously again um there was never any question in my mind ever that i would not be writing speculative fiction i just went straight back to it and at that point i began reading again in that you know sort of there's you know a big a big gap had happened there was loads of new stuff and i you know there's so much to catch up on and yeah, that's when I that's okay. when I discovered the SF community.
0: How about you, Renee? When did you become aware of science fiction as a genre? I mean, you've you've you know you've told us that you've had a you had a long history of watching anime, watching you know media science fiction, visual science fiction. When did you uh, get an idea of it as a genre?
3: Probably with the Hugo Awards because I picked up one rainy day long long ago. I picked up *Speaker for the Dead* in my library, mm-hmm. and I loved this book. <laughs> It was in my it was in my high school library. They did not have a wide selection of science fiction at all. Mm-hmm. And they had a little sticker on it. It said the Hugo Award. And that led me to the Hugo lists. And that led me down like the rabbit hole, I guess. <laughs> and that's when I came aware of it as like a like a thing, like a a collection. But of course I lived in the rural south and we just we just didn't have this was before the internet. We just didn't have access to it. Like it's kind of like Nina said in her essay. Like if it's not on the shelf, it doesn't exist. Yeah. And so I didn't really get to read much of it until I hit college in like 2000. Yeah. So yeah, well, there's, a,
1: there's another transition that fascinates me here because we're talking about. I think all of us have had the experience of somehow discovering that science fiction was a different thing from other things we were reading. But the other transition which which I think gets us closer to some of the uh some of the issues raised in your essay, Renee is when did we all discover that there was a community, in other words, that there was somebody else reading science fiction when I was in high school, there were a couple of other geeky kids like myself. but it wasn't until years later that I attended some kind of a local convention where I realized that there was a group uh or maybe a number of different groups, in other words. When did we all make the transition from discovering that science fiction was a body of literature to discovering that there was a community that you could interact with for good or bad?
2: I remember, I remember my first encounter was a, a fantasy con. That's a, a convention we have every year that's affiliated to the British Fantasy Society in the UK. And my very first pieces of published work were published in the British Fantasy Society journal as it then was Dark Horizons and the editor of at the time Debbie Bennett she just you know sort of we were emailing about my stuff going into the journal she said oh you know you ought to come to FantasyCon and she's sort of talking about this as though it was a thing. It was long established. You know, what was it? i would never been to one. I, I didn't know anyone. I knew nobody. I knew Debbie by email. I hadn't met anyone. I You know, I sort of knew a few names because by then I was reading Interzone, for example, and I was reading um, The Third Alternative or, um, as it was then, Black yep. Static as it was now. They're the two yep. main British science fiction fantasy horror magazines. So I thought, well, you know, I'll, I I just went. I, I'm looking back on it now. It just ah. seems, oh, my God, you know, I didn't know anyone. But I, I very, I it was just a, a good experience. Um, I was lucky enough that first year to meet one or two of the people that I had heard of who had either written stories for the magazines or who I had seen a little bit of online. And it just, the the people I met then, Friends now, they've you know I've now known them for over ten years, and that's that's how I discovered the community. Hmm. How about you, Renee?
3: I came to it completely backwards. I discovered Harry Potter fanfic in two thousand one because yeah. a friend wrecked Harry Potter to me the series when it was still ongoing, and it opened up the like the world of like fantasy, and I got I got a lot of wrecks for from for fantasy books. Like I know, a lot of people recommended like older fantasy titles to me at that point, and I joined the fandom community there. They were and science fiction fandom and like fanwork fandom, as I call it, have like like split in the sixties, sort of over the Star Trek stuff, and now they're sort of slowly like, merging together. I guess so. Like I met like I met so many people back in Harry Potter fandom that I'm still talking to today, and they introduced me to so many books. And that's when I realized that, the, like, the internet had brought these, pe- like, these different communities together, and we were all like now talking about these same things, all these stories and movies and books. And yeah, that's pretty much when I discovered it. So, thank you, Harry Potter fandom. <laughs> Was there a point when you first attended
0: a convention?
3: I've never gone to a convention. Actually, I really? live in too rural of an area.
0: Oh. So, so at this point, I mean. I must have, having read your essay, Renee, I had assumed that a lot of what you're talking about, which we'll get to you know, shortly, uh, had happened face to face at conventions and on panels and all that sort of thing. I take no, it that, that that's, just, it all happened online.
3: You know, well, no, most some of the things that have been said to me have been said by people he, like all, like offline, like people in group settings, um, people who just read science fiction and don't really participate in fandom. Like a lot of these people, like a lot of the, the quotes I used came from like dudes who read nothing like but dude bro epic fantasy and nothing else. Yeah. And
2: mm-hmm.
3: they don't really take part in the community. Like not like my essay wasn't like aimed at anybody that's in the community because I don't think anybody in the community would actually make these arguments to, to another fan. These are like People who don't are not inclusive or collaborative. But yeah, that I've never been to a convention. I'd love to go to a convention and meet people, but no, <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm not bad mouthing conventions, so I've never, I've never been. I've never been to one, and I promise that none of this stuff happened at a convention. Well,
0: I guess maybe to lose. Well, sorry,
1: Gary, yeah. go ahead.
3: I mean, I, th- I
1: think all of us had the experience of um, having some. It's happened to me at horror conventions, which I've only been to. A, because I'm not that well-read in the recent history of horror. But there is a certain kind of, of, of self-proclaimed fan, and and the phrase that has been floating around is a true fan, that, that feels that if you haven't read exactly what they've read, um, you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and, and you mentioned Harry Potter fandom. I, I have some friends uh, and friends of friends who, who met each other in, in Discworld fandom, which is another fandom that is... Half separate. It seems to be a, a number of people in that world read nothing but Terry Pratchett, and the other half of Discworld fandom are people who read Terry Pratchett in conjunction with the rest of fantasy and science fiction. Um, so, so, so they're they're less exclusionary. But I think that the uh, the attitude, uh, Renee, that you described in the essay uh, is. It's really very insightful because if you've never been to a convention, if you go to a convention, I promise you, you will see exactly that happening over and over again.
3: Oh, dear. That's not good.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) it happens to all of us uh, to some extent. Uh, But the the issue is this. The issue is, um, do you have to do anything in order to be a fan? If you want to be an academic historian of science fiction or fantasy, that's one question. If you want to write reviews, that's another question. Um, But are these people actually saying you can't be a real fan unless you have done X and Y?
3: Oh yeah, you see that all the time, right? In comics fandom especially, because like, I've had friends tell me they've gone into comic shops and the proprietors of the comic shops, people selling them the books, will quiz them over what they know and judge them if their knowledge isn't up to par. And like that's just it's just a form of just a really weird form of gatekeeping, like this is my thing, and you can't have it, I guess. I'm not actually sure where that comes from.
1: Have you, have you, I won't sell the- you that until you can fill out the following questionnaire
0: Yeah <laughs> Have you encountered that, Nina at all
2: um i i had I've had one unfortunate experience on a panel. Um, where two of the members who will remain nameless were solely interested in swapping anecdotes about a certain very, very, very niche part of the conversation that we were supposed to be having. And they, I actually had to fight to get into the conversation. I actually, you know, and I, I will do that, but I felt particularly horrified for another guest on the panel who you know who had come from a long way to be on that panel and who barely got to do anything other than introduce themselves um yeah Mm. you do you you know that's that's apart from anything else that's just appalling moderation on you know on the part of the person who was meant to be moderating it who was one of the chief um culprits in the exchange I've just described um Mm. they it's I think it's it's not an actively "I'm going to keep you out" thing. I think, personally, I think it's that people, maybe especially in our genres, they have, we we all have a, a love of um, facts about things, maybe learning things, learning the minutiae, enjoying. Being really kind of fluent in in the area that we're particularly interested in, and I, I think that it's it's almost a kind of a an insecurity maybe about their own knowledge. They 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 want to feel that they're sort of on top of the tree. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what causes it. It's a very alien. Yeah. You know, alien feeling to me. I just, don't, you know, why you wouldn't want to just welcome
0: mm-hmm.
2: any, you know, any anyone in, really?
0: Do Do either of you? And i would be curious to know what you both think about this. Do either of you feel that you've been made less visible in science fiction because you're women? <sighs> Nina,
2: ah, uh, <coughs> I, I, I honestly don't know. It. I don't know if it's a question that I can answer because everything would be supposition. Yeah. Um, as I said a minute ago, I'm the kind of person, I am I am lucky enough to be of the temperament that is prepared to fight, um, I'm not going to be intimidated. You know, I'm not interested in intimidating anyone, but neither am I interested in being intimidated. So I'm going to, um, you know, try and make my voice heard if I think I have something to say. Um, I have certainly heard from close friends of mine, close women friends of mine, that have felt intimidated in a con situation and not just on panels the one that comes most memorably to mind is a a very dear friend of mine who described once going out for a curry with a whole load of guys after a, a day at the con and i think if i remember rightly she was the only woman at that table and they were all you know just bang 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 talking about what deals they had, what anthologies they were in, what projects they had coming up. There was sort of absolutely no interest at all in, you know, she was still quite junior in, mm. yeah. in the fandom at that time. She had published some stories, but she, you know, she was quite um, shy about pushing her way in. And, you know, she just said it kind of poisoned the convention for her, that experience, because a lot of the people at that table were people she had either read or heard about or in some way looked up to, admired, maybe mm. wanted to emulate even. And then she'd seen this this rather um, exclusive side to it, the whole process that just, you know, she hadn't been expecting yeah. and wished she didn't know about. So, yeah, yeah I, it's, it's not good. It's not nice.
0: Yeah. And how about you, Renee? Have you experienced that sort of thing at all?
2: I don't
3: think so. I might have. I can't really answer because I'm really loud. I have a really loud mouth, so I just tend to like, bulldoze through. Well, I, I bulldoze guess I'm, through I, things.
0: I guess I'm curious because because you've written about finding it um, that that finding authors coming into your online conversation, it you know limits that conversation or restricts it. So yeah,
3: because when you bring an author into a fan conversation, they're the authority, so they have the power to sort of in the conversation. And it's really hard online, since it's open to every everybody, to have people who don't know the author well, like as a person, mm. to mm. feel like they're not the authority. I think I could probably do it with some authors like that I know really well, um, but for people who are reading my stuff that don't know those authors, they just feel weird about it. And, but I don't really ever feel like I've been like personally that I can remember felt like I've had an experience where that's happened, probably because I've just tried to ingratiate myself with extremely powerful people. (laughs) Jonathan,
1: to some extent that. That's not a fair question because if, you, if you're excluded from a discussion, by definition, you're, you're you won't excluded. What's going
3: on? <laughs> well, I mean, I've seen, I've seen people like there's like like link roundups. There's like a lot of those that go around, and I've no, like I've noticed in the past, like back when I was doing like coverage of women on SFF blogs, that little data study that I did about reviews in the in the fandom, I noticed that for a while after people who did link roundups that I know followed, um, Lady Business, the blog that I write for, they stopped including us in, in those things. Hmm. And I noticed a lot of people will link to, um, Barnes and Noble reviews. And now I write for Barnes and Noble. They'll link to all the reviews except for mine. And they think like, we're a really small community. So if you're doing link roundups and you're including reviews from one (laughs) venue, but by like, but not including reviews by one person, they're going to notice. <laughs> so it's things yeah. like that, which are they're like, they're silly and I don't care that much. But when you're outspoken, I guess you can make people upset. <laughs> Oops.
1: <laughs> but I'm interested also in the, the, the other part of the essay that, uh, the, the, that is certainly worth spending some time on is, is the notion, first of all, that, that you, you, you be, you're told by people you have to read this or you can't understand scholarly unless you've read Heinlein and so forth. So you started reading back in the history of the field, and and just found yourself bouncing off a lot of these voices.
3: I really did. It was really awful. it was really awful. I I tried like something like and I can't think of the names now. It was just so so many of them. I think seventeen books or so, and I oh. made it through zero <laughs> <laughs> of them. And this is not just I'm not. This wasn't just classic stuff. This was also stuff from like the '90s and yeah. the early aughts. So it's jo- not just classic Golden Age SF. This was a lot of different, a lot of different male writers, and yeah, I don't. And I think probably it's because I don't have a lot of context for the older literature. I, also, I often find that with older, older SF, older books. Period. I do much better with them when I can read them in a classroom setting, oh where God. I have somebody to dis- to where I, where I can discuss them with a professor or other students. So I think I was missing that. Yeah, well, I think then, I've, i I
2: got spoiled that, with my degree.
0: <laughs> you were going so, to um, say, say something, Nina?
2: <laughs> yeah, and no, I was going to say about about you know discussing them in in context um, with with some of the older literature. Now it's almost the only way that you can look at those i mean certainly if i if i was if somebody now who was new to science fiction or hadn't read science fiction and thought they might like to give it a go there are not going to be many works from you know the 70s the sort of you know 70s and before golden age science fiction that i would be recommending purely for the reading pleasure as it were uh, because there is, mm. there's just, there's so much, not just, not just in terms of, there's, you know, there's obviously some really dodgy politics in a mm. lot of Golden Age SF, and there's a lot of really backward social assumptions. These things are, re- you know, really embarrassing. Like, it's, it's almost as bad as watching old, you know, sick British sitcoms from the seventies, which you know you would not be <laughs> showing anybody no, that now. That. It's just so. Horrific. And, and likewise, but with, with, with the, um, with older work, when you can, when you are looking at it as the sort of nascent germs of the genre as it is, ex, as it, as it is developing and expanding today, there is an interest to be had there, but not just for the reading pleasure
0: well is that one of the issues here that you've, you, when you go to a convention maybe when you in- interact online and you start talking to someone who's been reading science fiction for 50 years as can happen you in a sense almost encounter a sense of horror that someone would believe that Black Destroyer by A. Van Vogt might not be entertaining <laughs> yes
2: <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. no that ser- it seriously does happen and there are pe- there are definitely people around um more than a few who are sort of you know stuck in the sort of cambellian Gernsbackian mm. doctrine
0: mm-hmm.
2: um it's ve- but but it but but it's in a way um it may happen to all of us in the end we tend to feel i think an intense nostalgia for the era of science fiction that we discovered when we first encountered the genre the the first novels the first stories that made an impression on us so it's i i I have come across um people in you know the, the generation before mine that are it's not that they're it's not that they're against the science fiction that is being written now or that They think it is inferior. It is far simpler. They cannot be asked to read it. And they're just, they're just still, you know, so they fall back on, on the SF they know that fit, you know, that, that just falls naturally into their frame of reference. So it's, it's incumbent on all of us to, to, um, grow with the genre maybe and to keep up with, you know, what is, you know, how is it changing, who the new writers are. And as science fiction gets bigger and bigger, that is um, harder to do. I, You know, 50 years ago, it was possible to actually read almost everything that sure. new that came out during the course of 12 months to try and do that now you would probably end up with, like, two hours sleep a night or something. We haven't calculated it, but... I I,
0: I, I think if you you actually cloned yourself and and had your clone read it with you, you still wouldn't keep up. Truthfully, there's that much. Um, I wonder if part of the issue when you encounter people, you know, online, offline, who are arguably not well socialized and don't know they should be more considerate and more thoughtful... If some of them fall victim to the fact that recommending books is a surprisingly personal thing, that when you reject Robert Heinlein, say, and he's he's the poster boy for this, very unfairly in my in my own feeling, if only because he's dead and really isn't part part of this, it's being done on his behalf, but. When you reject Heinlein, you kind of hurt them because they feel rejected. Because, and, and that's the sort of what you're getting the response back. It's this, hey, this is great. That's rubbish. I hate it. I'm hurt. Rather than, I see that it wasn't what you wanted to be reading. Right? Reader's advisory is work. Yeah.
3: Like, that's, like librarians do that. And that's like, a training. You get trained to do reader's advisory. It's really hard. And a lot of the times with rec- recommending, uh, if you don't have a thick skin your favorite book's going to get dragged and that you're not going to have a good time. So <laughs> if you go into a recommendation situation, which a lot of people I think do and have books that you really enjoy and, um, that are a part, like a part of your personal canon, have people say, no, no, not that, no, that's, and you're not prepared to deal with it. That's going to create these really awful situations. And I know that's probably some of the things that I've been through. Like I've, Accidentally, like insulted somebody's favorite book.
0: Oops, mm-hmm. we've all done it. <laughs> yeah, actually, you, know, you, you touch on the word "canon." When did you first encounter the idea of a science fiction canon? Oh, I
3: that's think that's going to be that, yeah. Wow. Well,
1: I mean, if you've read a lot of anthologies, there's a kind of implicit uh, weeding out that goes on at, at that point. And every every few years, there's a new, especially for classroom use. Uh, an anthology like the Wesleyan anthology of science fiction is one of the most recent which seems to establish a kind of short fiction canon I think over the period of the 70 or so years that science fiction anthologies have been a regular feature of life there's been a sort of uh, default canon of, of stories that get reprinted again and again and again and that's 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 the area where a lot of women have been historically excluded because there are a lot of short fiction Especially in the 40s and 50s, that doesn't show up in those anthologies. A canon of novels has to come from somewhere, and uh, you could read books like uh, Pringle's 100 Best Novels of Science Fiction, but then you're getting one person's view of a canon. So, uh, I I mean, I wonder if canon isn't something that we, Jonathan, that you and I just talk about all the time that nobody else really cares about at all. (laughs) It's
0: Well, I'm not sure. I'm curious to know exactly what, what René and uh, Nina think about this. My, my own feeling is the part that there's a particular group of people who care about it very person- passionately, a very large number of people who are unaware of it or couldn't care less, and a certain group of people who aren't entirely sure that it exists at all.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I first... Did, I, when um, what um, Gary was just saying about anthologies, hmm. I think that's... Um, I first became aware of something like a canon through an anthology. And that was the Penguin science fiction omnibus um, as edited and collated by Brian Aldiss. And it was originally um, put together in the early sixties and Mm -hmm. covered SF from a period sort of roughly 20 years before that up until, you know, virtually the date of publication. And that was, of great interest that i was i was 14 15 when i read that and it was of huge interest to me at the time because there we had a whole list of writers that wrote science fiction they weren't you know some of the names were already familiar to me from my own um Mm. reading in science fiction I i think um clark is in there i think ballard is in there although i didn't fully discover ballard until much later but um you know, so I, I, I really gulfed this down, but it wasn't until we, until Renee wrote her essay, which, you know, immediately pulled me in and I wanted to sort of examine my own, my own entry into the genre as a sort of response to that. And I looked at that anthology again, hadn't looked at it in a while because it's all the stuff I don't really read anymore. And I was, I was just, I I I was horrified really really horrified when I saw there was only that I think there are 33 stories in there there is one story by a woman and it it honestly it just made me it made me so angry because it's so, this is this is where the this is where these um parameters Mm -hmm. begin to be set up because this is how that um renee mentioned the hugo um her entry into the um, science fiction literature via the hugos there used to be anthologies every year i don't know if they're still doing them um called the hugo winners yes and i i used to read these as well because even though i didn't really know what the hugos were (laughs) (laughs) i knew that it was good you know it was meant to be the best so you know i I would read those, and you know, dare I say God help anyone who gets to read this year's um <laughs> as their entry into the genre might be quite uh, a short but, book yeah exactly <laughs> but um the the um it 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 is it is um the idea of a the idea of a canon is fascinating to me as a starting point for discovery not as a prescriptive proscriptive reading list of you know this is what you have to know I I like that it's almost the canon is there almost so you can kick out against it and I've I've always I've I've always felt this with canons of any kind what is it why is it there and what are we going to do about it (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: but then i mean I, i'm curious for you know to hear what all of you say about this but do you think there actually is one i mean we talk a lot about a canon uh there are a few people who have attempted to, to write one down but i don't know that there's actually a clearly stated defined agreed canon that you could point to there are some works that appear to be clearly canonical but how much of, th- of this canon is real, and how much of it is illusory? All of it is illusory. It doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> it no, doesn't I mean, yeah. exist. Well, you say it doesn't exist, but okay. I could I could name five works probably off the top of my head that might be considered canonical that's just not written in stone anywhere. So, I mean, how do you find out about it? I mean, it, it, if, if, if it's not written down anywhere, if it's not you know, du- duly authorized, you don't get, you know, sort of a, a, a stamp on your book from the, you know, the, the, the canonization process, H- how does it become a thing?
3: It's a social con- like it's yeah. a social construct and it's also a social contract that we enter into with each other as science fiction fans, I think. Um, it's a, a collection of stories that we, um, a lot of us have shared nostalgia for, um, awards also create um, the illusion of a canon. They can, especially if a certain certain books go through, like the all the like they end up on all the short lists in one year. I think it's really safe to say that, like in ten years, we're gonna be looking back and go, "Oh, Ancillary Justice, yes, that's part of a canon. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start we're gonna build it, and we're gonna put that book in it."
0: It, it, um, is the test that it won awards, or is the the test that it's in print in ten years or twenty years?
2: Neither the question. <laughs> the, test oh, neither. Is, the test. The test is whether it still stands up to critical scrutiny. Whether it still speaks mm-hmm. to people. Sure. Um, whether we, you, you know, whether whether it whether it still has value to people. Um, the the canon. I I th- I think it's also quite odd talking about the canon because it, even within science Mm -hmm. fiction there are several canons there are those there is the canon drawn up or talked about by people who adhere to you know what i'd call the gernsback doctrine which is that sf began in the united states um in the in the 20s and that's the definable literature of science fiction and that's where you're drawing from there are people um, that adhere to, shall we call it, the Cloutian hypothesis of Fantastica, which is that, Mm -hmm. you know, science fiction or Fantastica began a great deal earlier and that the the Gernsback period is just one period of the overall, um, you know, sort of progression of literature that we can call science fiction or speculative fiction. So the canon varies even depending on who you talk to. I think the, the the key, the key words almost are, are Renee's own when she said "personal canon." This is this is what is sort of most interesting, sort of you know what yeah, yeah, would I, I, speak to individuals.
1: Uh, and, and to some extent, how you form that personal canon is much more of a problem because sometimes you'll find sometimes people will recommend books to you. Uh, and they're always right. In other words, you'll occasionally, very rarely, find somebody whose taste coincides enough with yours that you have this little conspiratorial can- canon of two people. Um, but th- there's, another, there's another way of reading into the past or another reason for reading into the past other than reading books that are purely canonical. And that is when, for example, Renee, you mentioned that somebody said you, if you're reading Scalze and you haven't read Heinlein, well, of course you don't need to read Heinlein, but Scalzi is in dialogue with Heinlein to some extent, so there's another layer of reading Old Man's War, um, you know, if you're aware of, of that antecedent, but much in the same way that if you read, let's say, um, Karen Joy Fowler's What I Didn't See, and if you've never read Tiptree, that's still a good story, but there's an additional layer of meaning if you realize what story this one is in dialogue with
3: right but the problem oh. i have with that formation is like i mean yeah it's an extra layer but a lot of people treat it like it's required like you can't you can't get everything from a book so and since you're not getting everything from a book because you don't have all these additional um ticky boxes oh. checked off it's a it's a problem and that's that's the the conversation i had with this dude about Scalzi and Holland which is really she was really unbelievable. I was like, okay, well, I'm never reading. I'm never reading that guy. So I guess I'm just only going to be able to enjoy Scully's work on a superficial level. Goodbye. It was a really <laughs> terrible <laughs> conversation to have. I d- I do agree that I mean, yeah, he's in conversation. He's having a conversation with Heinlein, and I'm probably not aware of it. And I'm actually okay with that. And I think that's probably a, a part of the issue is that I'm okay with not having. Like I guess, "quote unquote," the full dialogue that is poss- is a po- well, is a possibility.
1: And and, and Scalzi would completely agree with you on that, as would any contemporary writer. I think that you know, that, that, that if I mean, it, I've, I've had this conversation with a number of writers who have deliberately alluded to earlier writers, and I think all of them would perfectly be happy to have as many readers as they can, whether or not those readers are aware of all the elements that went into their fiction, uh, and. I mean, Nina, you write uh, your, your fiction sometimes alludes very knowingly to uh, traditions of earlier British fiction, but I'm I'm certainly don't want your readers confined to people who've read exactly what lies behind your work.
2: Absolutely, I I mean, I would I would consider a story a failure if y- if you had to have some kind of. You know, pre-knowledge to be able to read it. I think you know any any story, any story must must stand alone. And I feel really passionately about including readers in the dialogue in what in the dialogue with me in in what I'm doing. If if there is a particular area of knowledge, it, not just about science fiction, but about anything. I mean, I I love music. I love art. I love you know natural history there are sort of loads of little weird niche areas that i'm really fond of writing about in my fiction and Mm -hmm. if i if i want to include these things in my story i will try to express the ideas in such a way that it's inviting people in inviting them to to you know partake of it to find out a bit more rather than erecting a wall of knowledge that is supposed to debar them i think it's 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 horrible. It's a horrible idea that the sort of fiction should be inclusive, not exclusionary. And it should, you know, want to invite rather than show off, you know, showing off knowledge. Yeah. Who cares? You can get that knowledge. You can get that knowledge from a book. Anyone can get knowledge, you know, showing off knowledge is, is not a, a, a good thing in itself. Um, I, I feel that, um, what Renee said just now about the problem with the canon starting when it is seen by whoever as a requirement—that's exactly right. I, I you know, it, that is when it's a problem. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a problem to be interested, even in Heinlein. If you're interested in reading Heinlein, go ahead and read. You know, I, I'm personally. I'm fascinated by the canon. I can't read an awful lot of older science fiction. I end up sort of like turning over a few pages and going, oh my God, you know, mm. I can't deal with, but I'm, I'm very interested in it. Um, I like, you know, going into all those nooks and crannies of who came from whom, who was influenced by who else. But that's me personally. That's my personal interest. And the idea of trying to inflict that on anyone is just a you know it's
0: a, it's a no, that's a no for me. <laughs> so, so basically, there is a this cultural pressure within fandom, I guess, to know everything, to be aware of everything. And I, I mean, I'm certainly, I'm greatly persuaded by the idea that almost no writer, no serious writer, ever has sat down to write a book or a story or a poem or to draw a picture or to make a film that you could only ever appreciate if you had experienced some other previous work. I don't believe that Bester thought you could only read his book if you'd read Dumas. I don't believe that Haldeman wrote his book thinking you couldn't appreciate it if you hadn't read, Holt, read Heinlein. I certainly don't believe Scalzi did that. I'm very, very sure of it, in fact. So, mm. so what gives rise to it? what? What should we do about this? is there anything other than having conversations like this that we can do to say to people, you know, you're a science fiction fan when you say you are one. The stuff you read is all you have to read. There's other stuff out there, but you don't have to read it. And just because I happen to have read Starship Troopers doesn't mean that my reading of The Forever War is any smarter than yours.
2: Exactly. So That's it you've said it <laughs> that's you know that's the that's the essential position sort of talking talking about that saying that i mean some you know if somebody's seen one of the alien movies and thinks you know they might like to discover more they they you know they should be as welcome as somebody who's been reading in the field for 30 years mm.
1: I, mean, I, was, I think that's interesting. Gary. The point that you were making earlier, Nina, about, about writers are like this and I mean, in the sense that <clears throat> essentially writers want to bring people into their work and if that brings people into the genre, <clears throat> so much the better. I mean, I'm sure that Scalzi would say if somebody reads my novels and then goes off and discovers Heinlein as a result of that, he's happy with that, but he's not going to. <clears throat> You're right. He's, he's inviting people into the field. By the same token, if you read uh, I don't know, there are Silverberg stories that are based on Joseph Conrad, and, and Bob has said that he, he doesn't necessarily expect science fiction readers will know Joseph Conrad, but if they go out and read Conrad's The Secret Sharer because they've read a Silverberg story, more power to them. So effectively, what what we seem to be saying is that, that writers themselves want to be inclusive. They want to bring as many people into their work as possible, and if those people go on and find other works that are related, that's great. That becomes part of that person's personal canon. Whereas the kind of dudes that Renee is talking about are saying, no, you can't come in, no girls allowed. You know, like those cartoons, houses, girls misspelled. And the, 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 I'm sure they're out there. I'm sure they're in comics fandom. I'm sure they're in gaming fandom. I, I, I know, actually, everybody knows they're in gaming fandom. Um, but why do we have to pay any attention to them at all? Uh, the creators aren't paying attention to them, as far as we can tell.
3: It's a conversation, right, that we're having. Um, in my essay, I talked about where I see this the most, and it's in lists, actually. When mm. you have you have a blog, so you want to do a themed rec So you do a themed rec Six of the books were by white dudes. Mm. And... Like the other four are by white women, so then now you have a problem uh, like a like a a racial makeup problem of your list and then you go to another list, and there's ten books on it, but they're all they're all by white dudes this time, and then you have mm-hmm. another list of twenty books, and there's one by a woman, and the rest are by dudes. This is the kind of thing that i I see happen a lot, and it's I'm not sure it's the writers actually, because the writers want people to read their work, so I don't think they're going to be engaging in this type of behavior. It's the it's the it's the recommendation engine because
1: uh.
3: when you're when you have a certain nostalgia about books and you're making um, you're just regurgitating, uh, like you're just cycling through this this uh, well, I guess we call it canon. I guess we can call it a canon that you've been told is a canon. So if you like if you just go to Google and top in science science like science fiction books you should read and like hit like hit enter and like search like they're probably like the top ten lists. They're all gonna ta- contain like a book by Hanlon. He's gonna be on every single
2: one of those lists. Mm-hmm. And, and there were that's there kinda, were right sorry, Renacle.
3: No, I mean that's I mean that's just how that's just how it is. Like he's gonna end up on all those lists and he's just gonna get and that like I don't I don't really feel like in some cases, some of his work can't be just read as pleasure reading. Like sometimes, like sometimes you need some context. So new people coming into the genre are going to pick up these books and be like, "What the heck is happening?" <laughs> so, and that's that's the problem. Right? These lists just propagate this idea of canon over and over and over until we've created a monster.
2: And there were, I mean, I um, there were a couple of a couple of weeks ago. Um, there were a couple of writers who did, I, I think any, a lot of people listening to this will have seen those lists that literally, um, didn't have, they, they were asked in interview, not together, but on two separate, coincidentally separate occasions in the, in the same week, I think it was, you know, who your, not just who your favorite writers are, which is a slightly different question, but, what books would you recommend to others coming into science fiction or who have just enjoyed your book? And in both cases, both men recommended, I, I do not have the list in front of me, but I think it was a hundred percent men.
3: Yeah, it was, I I know exactly who you're talking about. You know who you're, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. Uh, It was um, Andy Weir who wrote the Martian and Ernest Klein, whose newest book just came out. They both, uh, they, uh, Ernest Klein wrote on Barnes Noble, but Andy Weir was on. It was on Twitter. He was a part of a Twitter discussion, and I remember mm. uh, somebody actually asked Andy Weir like, "This is, isn't this a problem? Like, don't you like this is not good? Like, what contemporary? Like, he was asked contemporary, and he like returned a bunch of people from like before the eighties. It's not contemporary, I don't think anymore. But he responded like, "I don't. I don't read." based on gender and if you do you need to re-examine your priorities so it was less his list I think in that situation and more the fact that he responded so defensively and that defensive reaction is kind of what we're getting at I think here this idea that when you when people recommend stuff and you, can't, you come back at them and say hey this might be a problem maybe you want to diversify a little and they get upset at you
2: that sort of knee jerk that knee jerk kind of huh You know, how, it's, it's, it. that's a,
0: it's sad, yeah. Yeah. Okay. In in a sense, though, are you going to somebody and saying, when you read their list, tell me your personal canon, and then telling them that their personal canon is wrong?
3: No, I don't, no, I don't think so. I don't think that happened in this
0: situation. I'm sure it happened. I'm I'm not saying this occasion, but you say, you know, I searched on the internet for best science fiction lists. And these things are are not produced coherently or collectively. They're produced individually. And, I mean, I say this to some degree as devil's advocate rather than anything else. Is there an element of, when you say, well, I read eight lists, none of those lists is necessarily individually wrong. There's just a separate collective cultural issue. Mm That's
2: right. That is what that is, Yeah. yeah. Because you can't, obviously it's not a productive route to go down to sort of get at individual lists as such or individual posters of lists as such as the Mm. as as the cultural consensus that has whether the list maker realizes it or not and usually they don't realize it and that's why they have this big knee-jerk reaction when it is suggested, because it's just not, it it is unexamined. But the cultural consensus that has produced that list, the cultural consensus that caused Brian Aldiss to compile a landmark science fiction anthology with only one story by a woman, suggesting, oh, well, you know, and, and I'm sure at the time, I'm sure if he had been asked, he would have come out with this usual thing you hear again and again and again. I didn't look for gender. I looked for the best stories, and thereby suggesting that either that women aren't writing science fiction, or that the best stories aren't by women, or that we. And you know, this is this is the this is the the recycling of this problem through the generations, and it, it's that that is a problem that that the that the cultural consensus is being recycled and promulgated by these lists not the individual lists as such
1: I think that's true and I think I think possibly the list mania has gotten worse because of the internet because of the proliferation of 10 best lists and you can't you can't open a website anymore without seeing some link to 10 novels you didn't know about that have cabbages in them or something. <laughs> People are fascinated by, by, by compiling these lists. And there are lists, we should say, there are lists of 10 best feminist science fiction, 10 best uh, non-English language science fiction. Um, and if you if you look at enough of these lists, you can get some sense of the diversity in the field. The problem is you can't look at just one list. You can't look at any one person's list or any one group's list. Because that's going to be a reflection of their, a combination of their personal taste and the kind of ongoing consensus that, that you were talking about, Nina.
2: Absolutely. And I, d- I just want to make it clear that I'm not anti-lists. I love making them. <laughs> I make them all the time. <laughs> ask, ask my other half. He says I'm obsessed with them. I, it's just my, my I, I really enjoy it. Um, I think you know, what we're saying is let's um make some better lists and mm. li- lists are lists are useful for people coming into the genre. So knowing that, knowing that they are useful, knowing that people enjoy them, is it not I don't know whether I like the use of the word responsibility, but let's use it. Is it not our responsibility to make some better, more diverse, more interesting? Um, more progressive lists. I, You know, I, I think yeah. it's it's that is something we can do in well,
0: answer to Jonathan's earlier question. Well, while I uncategorically agree with you, I wonder if as well part of the problem is the demographics of the list makers, the kind of people who are drawn to create lists and publish them and put them out there in the world in the first place. You know, how much of an issue do we have that we have what I actually wouldn't call a canon at all. I think there's there, there's a fuzzy canon, there's a nascent canon. I think science fiction is still too young to have a true canon at all. I think we all have our individual canons and we share them socially, which is great. But in terms of an absolute canon and the whole idea of, you know, sort of the great books of Western literature kind of thing that are being transposed to science fiction, it's way too early. But do you think that it's... Men basically feel more like it's okay for them to make definitive lists than women tend to feel that.
3: I would be afraid, I would be afraid to create something that was called a definitive list and publish it under my <laughs> name. I'd be like, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. That's just like asking to be yelled at. <laughs> I would I would but be then, very cautious about creating a definitive list. But and then, then is that like another problem?
0: But is that another problem as well that you that you're you feel like you're going to get yelled at? I, I think there's nothing wrong with Renee saying, "Here's my definitive list of." Great books of two thousand and fifteen. So what? So you've said that. That's great.
2: I'd love to see that list. Yeah.
0: But 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 you're <laughs> but you're but you're afraid you'll get yelled at.
3: Um. Well. Yeah. Because like the last time I had like a really loud opinion and that fandom, I got like shouted like I got shouted down. Uh. Back in two thousand and thirteen. So I'm just really cautious about what like how like how I phrase things now. Yeah. I'm very careful because I don't like I don't want like, I don't want to make people anybody feel like some other SF fans have made me
0: feel where I don't know enough and what and so I'm what, just really what, what makes impossible. me sad about that is I'd love us to have a raucous m- marketplace of ideas. You know, I think you should be allowed to be as loud and brash as you want and show should other people and we should look at each other and go, you know, they're expressing their opinions. Let's listen to them as well as Talk as actually talking at them. I mean, don't talk at people. Listen to them, exchange them, be as loud and colourful about it as you want. Because then you actually get some idea of the kind of passion you feel for it. If we're all sitting here creating lists, writing articles behind the idea we have to be calm and careful and polite and that we don't want to bother anybody, we don't want to get this this internet madness of negative feedback. Doesn't that really impins our ability to have a dialogue about this stuff.
2: Probably, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think it is a problem.
0: Uh, I yeah, was going the,
1: to add. Uh, oh, go ahead, Nina.
2: No, I was just going to say I think you know the the it, what um, what Jonathan has just referred to as internet madness is is a problem here because the um, knowledge, the sure and certain knowledge that if you. It, you know it, as it, as renee said express an opinion loudly um you're gonna then spend the next three four five six weeks of your life sort of mm. mopping up the mopping up the debris from that outburst that's upsetting time-consuming often well beyond the um original point you wanted to make and you you know a lot of people are going to think twice about taking that on i i totally understand that so um yeah
0: i mean i certainly do it's, too and I, and I empathize with it sorry gary but i'm just gonna say i mean i completely um, empathize with it i just think i always feel like we need to sort of sort of push back a little bit i mean. Everybody should be allowed to have that opinion. When I mean, right now you're referring to a time in 2013. Everybody jumped on you; they were wrong.
3: Well, I don't know if they were actually wrong. I think my opinion. I think my opinion has um, matured a little bit and come around. So they may have had a point. <laughs> it's just like every, when everybody's like disagreeing with you at once. It's just it feels like you're being piled on. And I think it's probably different um, if you're a dude on the internet and you're running, be like the definitive list of 2015. You're gonna get a way different reaction. Like if you did it, Jonathan, than if I did it yeah. because you're a man and I'm a woman and you have a really long history in the fandom and I don't have that same history. So sure. it's, like, there's two totally different contexts that that list is going to work in and how people are going to look at yeah. it, which is unfortunate. But Well, I think it's, uh, the, the problem
1: I have with lists, and I, I agree with everyone that they're fun to look at i don't think I've ever looked at a list thinking I need to read everything on it, because the whole idea of this list making the whole idea of things you have to read, just mitigates against one of the central aspects of reading which is which is taste, which is individual taste um, i have I'm sure we've all had the experience of someone who doesn't read science fiction or someone who's a family member or a colleague saying, "What should I read if I want to read science fiction and as as, as an abstract question. That's like somebody who's never been to a baseball game saying, which baseball game should I go to? It doesn't matter. But you, 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 you know, they're all different. And to some extent, when people ask me that question, I have to think about, what do I know about this person? And in some cases, I have to say, I don't think you're going to like any science fiction. Maybe you'll like Flowers for Algernon, but pretty much you're not going to like science fiction. Go off and read what you want to read. Um, other people, I might recommend Hard SF. Other people, I might recommend... Uh, Satirical, uh, dystopian kinds of things, but I'm 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 always trying to figure out what this person would like, and there isn't any list I can't imagine coming up with a list of ten novels or stories that I would give to every one of my friends and say, if you read these books, you're going to understand science fiction, because if they read those books, most of them probably aren't even going to like science fiction. <laughs>
0: I know we're getting towards the end of our hour and there's an extra sort of thing I want to sort of touch on a little bit with both of you because I think it would be interesting and worthwhile and not completely alien to this. And it's something that you touched on in your response, Nina, to René's essay. Do you think, the pair of you, that women are not written into the history of science fiction, modern science fiction, as much as they should be?
2: absolutely and and i I feel you know passionate about changing that and I hope to um write more in in the in the future about women who were writing in the new wave um women who were writing even further back than that so just to sort of get, i i I love discovering these writers um you know my first discovery of what c l Moore was doing um I wrote about in interzone about a year ago that was an incredible discovery and again it's always this always this mixture of wonder and anger you know wonder at this you know really groundbreaking work that was going on and anger that um the women who were writing alongside um their male um writers in science fiction were not given the serious critical attention or even the commercial attention that the their men uh were we there is so much to discover uh so much interesting work and that's that's something that i personally definitely want to do more of and talk more about
0: renee uh,
3: yeah i do think that they've been erased in some ways from like, the ongoing conversation. Uh, for example, I, when I first got back into science fiction and fantasy in 2005, um, I was looking for recs, and all the wrecks I was getting was for, were by, by men, and things have improved since then, obviously. But, like, for example, I discovered Kate Elliott in 2013
0: yeah.
3: with her mm. Cold Magic. Her backlist is massive. She's been writing since the eighties. Yep. And she was invisible to me. Completely invisible to me as somebody who's like new and not like into the field. And that I'm sure that's happened with tons of women writers. CJ Cherry, another one, that was completely invisible to me. Andre Norton, completely indivisible yep. to me. And like my hope is that I, I want to talk about people writing now the women writing now the women who are publishing now because like doing the historical work is kind of hard for me because i don't have the financial resources or like the academic resources to really to really get into it and do that type of work but i can talk Mm. about the women who are publishing and writing now and put them into the conversation so maybe this won't happen to them too
0: i'm glad you say that because i think i could name ten Science fiction writers off the top of my head, who are currently writing, who've been writing for long enough to probably be in their 70s now, who seem to always fall outside of the conversation. And they're all women. I mean, I could maybe come up with men as well, but I can think of people who, I mean, you mentioned Cherry, who's obviously still being published, and is in her 70s, and has never seemed to get the kind of acclaim that I believe she deserves, I believe she should be a grandmaster of science fiction, and that it's a crime that she's not. I think of Kate Wilhelm. I think of, you mentioned Andre Norton quite rightly. I mentioned, you know, you think of Julian May. I think of... Uh, uh, Carol
2: M. Schwiller. Absolutely, and Kit Reid. she is, yeah. Mm. yeah.
0: And uh, Catherine Kurtz, and, you know, who's writing sort of classic fantasy right back at the cl- that, that period where epic fantasy is really finding its commercial sort of feat in the set late 70s, early 80s, but never gets talked about for some reason. Marion Zimmer Bradley, who, all of the problems aside, nonetheless made an enormous contribution to the history of the field. But there are no critical books about Marion Zimmer Bradley or Andre Norton, even to some degree Anne McCaffrey. And I think there is this compelling incumbent need. I mean, on top of this issue we're talking about, about poorly socialized knobs going around, not actually realizing that everybody has an opinion that's interesting and worth hearing there's also this other issue that for some reason it seems easier to lose women writers of science fiction historically than anybody else just about and I realise that that probably uh, reflects my own prejudices in reading and you could probably say the same for writers of colour and gay writers and all kinds of things and then writers outside of the English experience who are largely invisible to most of us
1: I think there's another factor that enters into this, which I was just thinking about when you were listing these names, Jonathan, and that is that when I look back at the historical figures of of women pioneer science fiction writers who also wrote fantasy, that in, in the collective memory, these the fantasy sort of the women get assigned to fantasy rather than the science fiction, by which I mean Andre Norton, who I started reading when I was a kid with novels like Starman's Son. Is, seems to be almost exclusively read for the witch world novels these days and for her yeah. fantasy. Um, one of the underread, I think, classics of feminist science fiction is the four-volume Holdfast Chronicles of Susie McKee Charnis, but she wrote the vampire tapestry and has since been remembered mostly as a vampire writer, as has Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough. Uh, you mentioned Anne McCaffrey. Who, to the end of her days, insisted that you know she was a science fiction writer and these were genetically engineered dragons. But she ends up on lists of best fantasy writers. So, is it possible that women science fiction writers who also write fantasy just somehow get assigned to the fantasy side of the ledger and their science fiction forgotten?
0: Yes,
2: there's definitely that. Yeah, there's definitely that tendency that people feel more comfortable discussing women writers within the context of fantasy rather than hard science fiction. It does still go on, Mm. um, unfortunately. Um, It's, you know, it's another idea that needs debunking pretty rapidly.
0: (laughs) I I guess to sort of flip on what I said a little bit, though, do you both feel that there are more female voices in the field now than there were a decade ago, or not, and that they're maybe being heard and talked about more.
2: I hope so. I think. I mean, with you know sites like Renee's are definitely doing work. It, I, I thought. I thought what Renee said just now about wanting to promote and talk about women writers now, so that. They will not be erased in the way of, of say the women in the new wave were. Um, I think that's fantastic. Uh, there's, mm. um, sites like, um, SF Mistress Works, for example. Ian Sales set up that site. He's always looking for new reviews of works of science fiction by women writers. Um, um, Carrie Sperring has recently been doing a column at Strange Horizons about, um, women that have been sort of overwritten as it were by their male counterparts it's sort of there there is a there is more there is definitely definitely more discourse around it and i hope that the effects of this will eventually be seen in the marketplace and on the readers shelves
0: given that we're all we're basically at the end of our time to try to keep this roughly to an hour i'd like to ask both of you perhaps starting with you renee uh, you know since since it was your essay that sort of sparked this off What would you like to see change? And how would you hope it might change if you've got an idea of that?
3: I would like people to be more aware of who they're talking about at all times. Like, if you're on a podcast giving an interview and you somebody asks you for recommendations, don't go into the interview blind or unprepared. Make a list of... Make a list. Like, make it even. Like, five dudes, five women. Make sure there's people of colour in there. Have the list ready. When you're making lists for your blog, Uh, think about the racial and gender makeup of that list before you post it. Just really simple things. Um, Try to, like, rotate your reading. Read a book by a dude and a book by a lady. Like, these Mm -hmm. really simple things that don't take a lot of work. They're not much effort. And they make a ton of difference. To people like me who are new, and when people like me who are new come into the field... And we listen to your interview or we read your blog. We're going to see that. And it's going to be way more helpful to, to us in discovering really diverse, interesting science fiction than it would be if you're all you're doing is regurgitating your favorite books as a teenager that were all bad dudes. I don't know how that might change, but... <laughs> like it's just it's gonna, it's gonna take some effort but I think that would be like it's it's an easy thing to do you, everybody could do that it's totally doable
0: nina
2: i just completely second that it's it's you know i couldn't have put it better that's raise awareness get get the best the most interesting science fiction be enthusiastic think about what you're recommending think about why you're recommending it ask ask the questions ask the questions of yourself because you might get some interesting answers
0: it, I guess that's it isn't it, it's really thinking about the impact of what you're doing when you do it and I know people who will say but hang on you're just asking me to think about respond to some kind of demographic imperative or something, or something be politically correct or whatever else but it's not really that at all, it's if you're going to create a list, make it a pathway for as many people as possible into the genre.
3: Yes, you have to at this at this point because look at fandom and how it's expanding. Look at Tumblr, where um, where pretty much I, where I um, that's where my fandom is right now. It's mostly women. we really we're gender diverse. We're racially diverse. And if you want to bring more people into the field, if you want the field to grow, you can't just recommend things that aren't going to appeal to this diverse audience who has so much issues from like like tv shows and video games and podcasts Mm -hmm. and all these things that are super diverse you have to make your stuff diverse too to appeal to them because if you're just regurgitating the same things they're not it's not going to appeal to them and you're not going to bring them in so if your goal is to bring more fans in you have to be inclusive
2: and, and just look at the results of that in what we're and what we're seeing the sort of the the diversity and you know the breadth of science fiction that is being written and discussed now just really couldn't have been dreamed of thirty or forty years ago. It is a richer literature in so many ways, and this is because mm-hmm. it is being enriched by all manner of people from all manner of backgrounds. And that that's what that's what literature needs, is sort of like the, you know, the horror of, of literature is it used to exist on the sort of English literature syllabus when it was sort of a very, very elect few people who were able to read or write. We don't want that. <laughs> you know, we, we want
0: uh-huh.
2: a wonderful literature. And, you know, that's what we want to be promoting.
0: Excellent. Well, on that note, Gary and Nina and Renee, I think we might bring the discussion to a close. Uh, I'm sure, Gary, you'd join me in thanking you, Renee, and you, uh, Nina, for making the time to talk to us. We appreciate it very Thank much. Thank you. Obviously, uh, Rene, they can find your writing on Lady Business, and we'll put a, a link uh, in the show notes to that. And, Nina, you have a new novel in the pr- process, and the race is out uh, from NewCon still at the moment. So, thank you very much, Renee.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: I hope to meet you at a convention somewhere someday, sometime. One day. And thank you very uh-huh. much, Nina, as well, for it, making time. It's been a very great pleasure to talk to you again.
2: It's lovely. Thank you both. Thank, thank all three of you.
0: <laughs> and, Mr. Wolf, I shall talk to you, well, tomorrow night. Very soon, absolutely. And until then, we remain now, as always, the Cood Street Podcast.